for our worship team. <laughs> All right. Um, today we continue our series through the book of Acts. Um, and what a rich series it's been, right? The book of Acts. It's, it's so wonderful. Um, as I've been preparing for the sermons from Acts, uh, oftentimes I've thought, uh, why am I preaching uh, from this text? Why not just read it to the congregation? Right? Because Acts is somewhat like a, a sermon in and of itself. Right? It's a powerful narrative of the acts of the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful narrative of the acts of the apostles. But let me say something briefly before we uh, dive into our scripture reading. Acts isn't simply a historical document that tells us of who the church was or how the church operated at one point or what the Holy Spirit inspired within the early believers. But really it's a vision. The book of Acts is a vision of God's heart for the church today. It's a picture of God's purpose for the church today, for you and me. So as we continue in our series uh, through the book of Acts, let me encourage all of us this morning to listen with an increased faith. Ask God for faith and for a grander vision of God's purpose for you and for the church, trusting that what's written here in these pages of Acts is what God wants for you. Amen? Amen. All right, bow your heads with me. Please bow your heads with me as I pray. Lord, uh, we, we want to come before you uh, with humble hearts. But Lord, there's so much baggage that we carry. There's so much junk that we carry. Junk that we are not even aware of. Lord, we harbor resentment. We harbor bitterness. We harbor accusations, we harbor judgments, we harbor greed, we harbor selfishness. And Lord, we don't want any of that. And so God, we want to surrender it to you right now in the name of Jesus. Trusting that when we give it to you, Lord, you offer us something much more better than we can ever imagine. God, we thank you for the word that you've prepared for us this morning Lord, it is not my words that will bring conviction or transformation, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, may there be less of Steve in you, and may there be more of you. May there be more of the Holy Spirit. And God, as we listen, may we trust that this is the word that you've prepared for us today because you love us. Lord, still our hearts. Quiet our hearts, Lord. We are unworthy. We are unworthy, Lord, to come before you, the creator of this world, the king of all kings, the Lord of our, all lords. We are unworthy to stand before you. But, Lord, you've made a way through the blood of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the permission and the space that you've created for us to come before you 
to be in your presence and to worship your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, the title of today's sermon is The Mark of a Christian Community. Not marks, it's not plural, but mark. The mark of a Christian community. And the scripture reading, it comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. So if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Acts 2, 42 to 47. If you don't have your Bibles, it's okay. It's going to be projected on the screen behind me. Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. If you have a pen, underline verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Last week, Pastor Corey preached from Acts chapter 2, verses 12 to 41, and we examined the Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost, right? Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit, he preaches a life-changing message that grips the heart of every person who stood before him. In verse 41, if we go back verse, uh, one verse, we read that 3,000 were added to their numbers that day as a result of Peter's message. 3,000 people gave their life to Christ from, a, from one single sermon. Now if we jump a couple verses ahead to verse 47, notice what it says. It says, And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. The Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Right, so sandwiched between verses 41 and 47, which is our text this morning, is this description of community life in the early church. Right, so naturally, at reading it, it might be tempting for us to read this in-between passage of verses 42 to 47 as a formula for church growth and a formula for ministry success, right? For example, a a church leader or a pastor might take this passage and say, if we have these elements, right, of teaching, which is preaching, of fellowship, right, which is our growth groups, of breaking of bread, which is our communion, and prayer, such as concert of prayer, God will grow our church and add to our numbers just as he did with the early church. Right, it's easy to read into the passage in that way, but I don't think that's what's going on here. As we look carefully at this text, Luke isn't prescribing a formula for church growth. He's not prescribing a a, a formula for ministry success, but rather Luke is describing the fruit of God's faithfulness manifested through the church. Let me say that again. 
Luke isn't prescribing a formula for church growth, but rather he's describing the fruit of God's faithfulness manifested through the church. Right? There's no doubt that these four elements mentioned here, teaching, fellowship, prayer, are critical to the life of any church. Right? There's no question about that. It's important. But just as Dr. Warren Wiersbe once said, you can never franchise the blessings of God. This morning, I'm going to provide for us a brief description of each of these four elements because they are important components to church life. But rather than focusing on the application of these elements to our church community, to West Covina Christian Church, I'm going to explore the heart posture of the church described here in Acts 2. Okay, the heart posture that ultimately made room for the fruit of God's faithfulness to manifest in their community life. The heart posture that created space for God to invoke within them to teach and to pray and to have communion and to fellowship. Right? Because these weren't things, these weren't things that they did because they felt obligated. Because they felt like this is what a church is supposed to do, right? They didn't plan, okay, first we're going to sing a, a couple songs, then, then we're going to meet and greet and have fellowship, then we're going to hear the pastor's teaching, then we're going to have communion, then we're going to pray. They, they weren't thinking that, <laughs> okay? These manifested, it man, the, the four elements, it manifested because of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it inspired them to do it. And there was a certain heart, heart posture about the church that made room for God to enter into that space and to allow that to happen. So let's jump right into these elements. The first thing mentioned in verse 42 is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Okay, we know that the apostles' teachings were not of their own, Right? It was the Holy Spirit within them that sparked the fire and compelled their tongues to speak and proclaim, declare the mighty works of God. And we know that because in verse 37, right, go back a couple verses from our text, after Pe Peter preaches his sermon at Pentecost, it says the hearers were cut to the heart and they cried out, what shall we do? In other words, what shall we do about the guilt, our guilt? What shall we do about the blood on our hands that crucified Jesus? You see, Peter's message, it convicted their hearts in that they were sinners and in need of God's forgiveness. There was power in their teaching. There was substance, but most importantly, there was conviction and transformation in the heart of its hearers. That's how we know their teaching had a divine anointing. And the apostles' teachings, right, it was legitimized as Peter's message, one single message on Pentecost, it brought more people to faith than the entirety of Jesus' three-year ministry. What a way to validate the apostles' preaching, right? If we remember John 14, 12, Jesus says to his disciples that he must return to the Father that they, his disciples, would perform greater works than they had ever seen Jesus do. 
right? Jesus says he must go back to his heavenly father so that from there he can pour his blessings and pour the Holy Spirit upon them so they can do greater works than he's ever done. And that's exactly what we see happening here with their teaching. That is God's faithfulness to the church. Is it not? Filling the apostles with the Holy Spirit so that through them they can share the gospel of salvation that gives eternal life to all who believe. The second element in the early church, it was fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, which is koinonia in Greek. Right, the word koinonia, it only appears this one time in the book of Acts. But in Paul's epistles, in his letters, it appears 18 times. In the usage of the word at that time, right, koinonia, it was used to describe the sharing, this idea of sharing possessions. But the 18 times that Paul uses the word in his epistles, there's a deeper meaning than just the idea of sharing personal possessions. Paul's koinonia, it alludes to deep intimacy. This idea of deep intimacy. For example, if we go to 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul, he says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, right? The koinonia of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the intimacy of of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The 18 times that Paul uses the word, he alludes to this idea of intimacy when he says koinonia. So we can assume the word koinonia in Acts 2, verse 42, also alludes to this idea of deep intimacy amongst the believers. And this intimacy is expressed to one another because of the intimacy they share in Jesus Christ. Again, this is an expression of God's faithfulness over the church. Right? Through the koinonia they share in Christ, they're able to experience the tangible love of God through the body of Christ, through the believers of Christ. The third element we see is the breaking of bread. From verse 46, we see that this breaking of bread... It happened in people's homes. It happened in people's homes, not in the temple or the marketplace or the synagogues, but in people's homes. It's important for us to see that hospitality, hospitality was a vital part of Jewish culture. It was foundational to the way of life in the ancient Near East because it was necessary for their survival. For example... It was common practice among desert people to offer their home to sojourners for at least three days. To offer their home to wanderers for at least three days. And during these three days, they'd feed them, they'd wash their feet, they'd offer a bath, a place to sleep, and even entertain them. This act of hospitality, it was extended not only to their friends and strangers, but even to their enemies, because it was assumed that they would also need this gesture handed over to them one day in the future. But get this. What distinguished hot Jewish hospitality 
from the other desert cultures, from the nations that surrounded them, was that it was rooted in the hospitality of God. The hospitality of God expressed through the year of Jubilee. According to the book of Leviticus, every 49th year, the year of Jubilee, slaves and prisoners would be set free from every slave owner. Right? Every penny of debt owed to any person would be wiped clean. You would get a clean slate. The reason God established the year of Jubilee was to remind the Israelites of their status as temporary residents in this world. That nothing of theirs is permanently theirs. To remind them of God's mercy that they were once slaves and that it's because of God's mercy that captives are set free. So for the Israelites, understanding themselves as sojourners, as resident aliens, this was a daily reminder of their complete dependence upon the mercies of God. So because they were wanderers, sojourners, whose welfare was sustained by God, they in turn extended the same welfare to the others in society through the year of Jubilee. So the breaking of bread mentioned here in our text in the early church is a partaking in communion, right? In the Lord's Supper that reminds them of the seat they're given at the table of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder of the hospitality of God, but it's also an act of continuing Jesus' ministry of hospitality to outsiders. Right? This act of hospitality through the breaking of bread was another expression of God's faithfulness. The final element mentioned in the community life is prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. If we look at Acts as a whole, we notice that the prayers of the early church, it included a wide range of prayers, right? There were prayers of supplication, prayers for strength and boldness, prayers for wisdom and discernment, prayers for signs and wonders, prayers for the Holy Spirit to empower leaders for ministry, so on and so forth. So we can assume that these were the types of prayers that took place in the early church. Prayers that were fueled with a desperate desire to see the face of God, right? To worship God and to expand his kingdom here on earth. So again, this was an expression of God's faithfulness to the church. It wasn't something they felt obligated to do. Something they felt a church needed to do, right? It was stirred up within them by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gave them the desire to pray and the anointing of power in their prayer. So here are the four descriptions of the elements described from our passage. My father-in-law is a coffee connoisseur. Okay, he's very meticulous and methodical in the way he prepares his coffee. He measures to the T the amount of coffee grind for each ounce of water, okay? He has a very particular method for doing his pour-over. 
he boils the water to a, ver- to a set temperature, right? He doesn't let, let it like boil, boil, boil. He sets it to a very uh, a, a particular temperature, and he pours the hot water over the coffee grind within a diameter of a quarter, okay? And he times his pour to an exact 90 seconds, right? He's got the science uh, behind it all down, okay? And let me tell you, it's the best cup of coffee your lips will ever taste. All right, it, it's delicious. He makes the best coffee. But he's not only methodical with his coffee-making skills, but he even roasts his own coffee. A pretty amazing, right? He roasts his own coffee beans. My father-in-law, he lives overseas, so whenever he visits us, he comes with at least a pound or two of coffee beans because he knows how much Stephen Yu loves coffee. <laughs> okay, one of the first things he'll do when he visits is he'll show me the bag of coffee beans, right? The freshly roasted coffee beans, and he'll even mark the date when he roasted it, right? And he'll open up the bag, and we'll take turns stuffing our nose into the bag and inhaling, right, the beautiful, wonderful aroma of the coffee beans. And when I sniff the coffee... There are times that I get a hint of caramel, okay? I get a hint of cocoa, of leather, and even tobacco, right? Depending on the region of where the coffee beans are from, right? The, co- the smell of coffee, it's so complex, but with enough practice of sniffing, you can draw out these wonderful scents. Now, smelling the coffee is one way for me to experience the pleasures of the coffee bean, Right? But if I want the full pleasures of the coffee, there's more I need to do to the beans. Right? Smelling the beans isn't enough. That's just a, it's just a tease. Right? There's there's some pleasure in it, but in order to experience the fullness, the full pleasures of the coffee bean, it needs to be subjected to my grinder. Right? It needs to be grounded up. It needs to be soaked in hot water. And ultimately, it needs to be poured out. As Christians... We're confident God desires to give us the deep pleasures, right? The deep pleasures of the Christian life, especially through our church community life. We believe God is a loving God, and the best expression of his love for the world is the church, the body of Christ, right? By going to church on Sundays and attending worship service, you can smell the aroma of Christ, right? By going to church and listening to the pastor's teachings, you can get a sniff of the gospel. By going to church and taking communion, you can get a hint of God's selfless love. Right? By going to your growth group and fellowshipping with other believers, you can get a scent of God's hospitality. By going to concert of prayer meetings, right, you can smell the intercessions of other believers. But here's, this, here's the thing. One of the paradoxes of our Christian life is that the pleasures and the fullness of the gospel is is experienced as we're grounded up. As we're subjected to the fires of life. As we're poured out for one another. Isn't that true? This process of giving ourselves, of subjecting ourselves to the fire, of pouring ourselves for the sake of others is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of Jesus. Hear what Hebrew 12, 2 says. 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus himself says in Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? Similarly, the heart posture of the early church is, is expressed in verse 45. Right? What does it say? It says, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Right? This verse, it's, it's not prescribing that all churches sell all their possessions and give it to the church. Right, to give it away. Right, some people will suggest that the early church was a socialist community because of this verse. But that's a wrong reading of this text. That's a wrong interpretation. It's important to see that they didn't sell all their belongings and all their possessions and at one time give all their belongings and all their possessions to the church. Rather, the text says they sold their possessions and they gave the proceeds as any had need. There was a rhythm of giving. Right? There was a rhythm of selflessness ingrained into the community life so that when a need arose, they were willing to give up their security and possessions for the sake of others. When a need arose, they were willing to sacrifice their belongings and comforts and pour it out for the sake of others. There was a hard posture of selflessness. There was a hard posture of dying to oneself. There was a hard posture of costly discipleship. You see, tasting the fullness of God's faithfulness and costly discipleship, it always goes hand in hand. Always. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Right? He's not trying to boost their ego by telling them how tasty and how important they are. Because salt not only makes food taste better by bringing out the food's inherent flavor, but it, what does it do? It dissolves into the food. You see, when we dissolve and we become less and we become selfless, and we die to ourselves and we embrace this call to costly discipleship, we create the space for God's faithfulness to manifest itself in and through our lives. Jesus, who we proclaim as Lord of lords, as King of kings, he gave up his priestly robe, clothed himself in human flesh, and came into this broken world, not with a ruling fist, right, but as a humble king, as a lowly servant. Jesus, who spoke this world into being with his words, gave up that power and submitted himself to the words of his, of his father to become a sacrificial lamb. Jesus, who we declare as the Alpha and Omega, gave up his eternal throne 
and subjected himself to the corrupt religious leaders only to be mocked and spat upon, ridiculed, and put to shame. Jesus gave up his authority and soaked himself in the boiling waters of humanity's sin and hung up on a cross, subjecting himself to be poured out like an offering. Jesus gave up his life, his eternal life, to take with him and lay to rest the death we all so rightfully deserve. That is the God we worship. That is what we declare through our elements of worship. Through the teachings, we declare the selfless life of Jesus Christ. Through the breaking of bread, we declare the sacrifice of Jesus' life. Through the fellowship of believers, we declare the lowly position Jesus took to be with us. Through the, our prayers, we declare the humility of Jesus. See, some of us may be praying and praying and praying. Right? Some of us may be listening to sermon after sermon after sermon. Some of us may be in 10 growth groups, some growth groups even outside of this church. Some of us may be taking communion every week, but we don't see the fruit of God's faithfulness in our lives. We've become so worn out and tired and church feels like a duty and we feel obligated to come here and to serve. But it was never intended to be that. God always intended these elements to be something that bubbles up from within us and flows out like a fountain of living water. I think a part of the reason why these elements have become dutiful and, law, and has lost its spirit-filled passion and in some sense has become dead to us is because we've adopted our society's attractional model of doing business into our churches. Right? Churches these days will ask, how can we attract more people to our church? Right? In other words, how can we franchise the blessings of God? But God never called us to be attractional or to create some brand with the cross. Right? When we become an attractional faith community, we become dispensaries for teachings, dispensaries for prayers, dispensaries for communion, dispensaries for fellowship, and we'll go and pick and choose the church that fulfills our demand. We try, to, we try to supply the demand of our consumeristic society. But God never called us to be attractional. God has called us to be incarnational. Incarnational, according to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, is costly. It requires us to die to our ego, to die to our pride, to die to our possessions, the tangibles, to die to our positions, to die to our rightness, to die to our self-will, and to carry the cross for the sake of others. To completely dissemble ourselves and to dissolve 
like salt into the cracks of others' lives so that by the pouring of our lives, we can bring out the fullness of God's faithfulness. That is incarnational ministry. You see, when we're shattered, when we're grounded up, and we're broken, that is the only position in which we can allow the Spirit of God to be released through us. That is when the Spirit of God will be released through our teachings. That is when the Spirit of God will be released through our communion, through our fellowship, through our prayers, through our elements of community life. If we want to truly experience the fullness of the gospel, and I'm sure you do, that's why you're sitting here, we must be willing to be grounded up for others. To dive into the hot waters for the sake of others and to be poured out like an offering. There must be a heart, heart posture of costly discipleship. As I was praying for you and reflecting on the spiritual pulse of our church, I stand convicted that the Lord is calling us to embrace this call to costly discipleship. This call to selflessness. This call to letting go of being right. This call to carry the cross. But starting from our homes. Let me get a little personal with you. With the destruction of the temple... Jews, they adopted the customs and practices of the temple into where? Their homes, right? When they eat dinner, they do so with candles, wine, and food. And the act of eating is an act of worship, right? It's the table of fellowship where they're invited by God. The dinner table is sacred. So every father of the household is considered the priest. And the dinner table is a sacred space of worship where the children and the parents worship the Lord together. Right? Their breaking of bread is an act of worship to God. The meal prayer is an act of worship to God. The fellowship conversation is an act of worship to God. The teaching from the father of the household is an act of worship to God. So here's the question. If our home is the temple, what do we see happening in our own homes? Is there a heart posture of selflessness ingrained into the rhythms of home life? Is there a heart posture of pouring out of oneself for the sake of others? Is there a hard posture of costly discipleship? And is this hard posture creating the space for the fruit of God's faithfulness to manifest through your teachings, through your prayers, through your dinner table conversations, through your breaking of bread? Or are there talks of bickering and who's right and who's wrong. 
yelling and shouting, accusations and judgments. See, no matter what kind of elements we partake in in the church, no matter the investment or the time or the money, energy we put in for the sake of doing God's work, in the end, our children, Mateo and Justice, and your children will see right through it if the heart posture isn't there. Our spouses will see right through it. Yes, we may serve faithfully in the church. We may dutifully partake in the elements of worship every single week. But when we're home and we fight about money, when we fight about time, about power, about what we deserve and can't get right, when we fight about being right, Our children will wonder why doesn't mom and dad talk about how they can be poured out like an offering to our own family. You know, the scariest thing about being a pastor, it's that I'll display the wrong God to my two sons. That I'll demonstrate a religion where it's all about me. And what I can get from it. And how I can get the most out of church life. I'm afraid that while I'm out here making sacrifices, right? And doing quote-unquote good by executing the elements of teaching, praying, fellowship, breaking of bread. My heart posture in the home isn't selfless, but selfish. That it's not costly, but advantageous. What kind of God will that communicate to my children if they see that gap between home and church? As they see the discrepancy between heart posture and pulpit. So let me ask you, where is your heart today? What is your home about? Costly discipleship and experiencing the full pleasures of God go hand in hand. If we're not willing to create that space within our own homes for God's faithfulness to invade, we'll go on sniffing the gospel. We'll go on getting notes smelling these scents of his faithfulness of the gospel without getting the full taste and experience of all that God has to offer us. I'd like to end my sermon this morning by a very long quote uh, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. It's projected on the screen behind me so you can follow along. He says... Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake 
a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. That is the God that we worship. Let us take that posture of costly discipleship And let the fruit of God's faithfulness invade into our homes and into our hearts and into our community life here. Bow your heads with me as I pray. Lord, we all come. We come before you as sinners. Lord, every single one of us are equally sinners in your eyes, Lord. There is no one who is better than the other. Lord, we all stand condemned, but because of your grace, because of your son, Jesus Christ, who dissolved himself, who gave his own life and poured his life, Lord, we stand righteous. Lord, may we adopt this call to costly discipleship, Lord, and when it hurts, Because it will hurt, Lord, when it hurts. Lord, when we feel like we're about to die, Lord, give us the glimpse of hope that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us the glimpse of your faithfulness, Lord, that saturates us, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this message. Lord, it's hard hard for us to accept it, but by the grace of the Holy Spirit that is given to us, Lord, Lord, may us fully embrace this call to costly discipleship, first and foremost, in our homes. Lord, if there is repentance, if there is confession, if there is forgiveness that we need to ask for, Lord, give us the courage to do so. If there is forgiveness that we need to extend, give us the courage to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.